When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. COP26, the gathering of world leaders looking to combat climate change, takes place over the next two weeks. Here at Intelligence Squared, we'll be taking this as an opportunity to explore some of the debates, big and small, surrounding the climate emergency. You can catch our Sunday debate on the opening day this weekend, which asks, is COP26 a turning point for the planet? But first up, a quick primer on what COP actually is, why it matters, and whether superpowers such as China, the United States and the European Union could be doing more to help. Here's The Economist, Linda Yu, with more. Over the next 12 days, world leaders, strategists, campaigners, and a few global multinationals too, are set to descend on Glasgow in Scotland for COP26, the world's most prominent global summit that seeks to address the climate crisis. The guest list is as significant for those who haven't turned up as it is for those who have. Chinese leader Xi Jinping won't be there, and neither will Russia's Vladimir Putin. Two seats at the table who jointly account for a third of annual greenhouse gas emissions. But U.S. President Joe Biden will be appearing. More on that later. Joining us to talk through it all is Isabel Hilton. She's founder of China Dialogue, a journalist and climate specialist who has been awarded an OBE for services promoting environmental awareness in China. We're also joined by Akshat Rathi, climate and energy reporter at Bloomberg News. A warm welcome to you both. Would you mind giving us a brief history, Isabel, of COP, previous summits, and indeed, um, what does COP stand for? COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and it's an annual event, and these are parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the foundational document of global climate action. And the UNFCCC, that's the the convention that recognized uh, anthropogenic climate change and acknowledged the need of the global community to do something about it. Uh, it set up scientific assessments, which produced very regular reports, both on climate science, on impacts, on all kinds of aspects of, uh, of climate science. And that's advanced enormously since it was first set up. We're now at the 26th meeting. Uh, we missed last year's because of, of, of the pandemic. Along the way, there have been protocols and and separate agreements which are under the UNFCCC. So there was the Kyoto Agreement, for example, which ran for quite a number of years. Uh, there was an attempt to replace that at Copenhagen, which failed. And finally, we got the Paris Agreement, uh, which is the current kind of action plan. So we agreed in principle 
with the UNFCCC that we had to do something. And for the next 26 years, we have been debating and actually making progress, putting systems in place and so on. But it's a long and complicated business. And of course, the effort has to continue because we've wasted a lot of time. We've, you know, we haven't moved as fast as we need to. So we really need to get down to it before 2030 or things get very, very difficult indeed. So the object of Glasgow, we're not negotiating a new treaty here. We're trying to make the Paris Agreement work. And that means meeting those ambitions which are embedded in the in the Paris Agreement, which is uh, net zero by by 2050, and keeping global average temperature rises to well below two degrees. And that's pretty much been revised down to 1.5 as, you know, the, the highest you can go without tipping into a, a real climate catastrophe. So the ambitions on the table, the plans that each country brings to the COP, we, we need to get those into alignment with that 1.5 degree goal. That may not happen, but we have to make progress there or the system might be seen to simply not to be working. So that's that's what COP is all about this time. Mm. And Akshar, just on that, um, what are you keeping an eye out for at COP26? As you said, it's going to be a lot of people, a lot of big names, a lot of countries coming up with their own agendas, trying to hash out uh, hopefully a deal by the end of it, just to be able to keep a track of all this. And because we're going to be a small team of people covering it, um, we've taken on five priorities. Um, some of them are ones that the COP leadership has already put out. So, for example, countries have to come with higher ambition on emission reductions. Um, that's top priority. And a lot of that work had to be done before the meeting actually started with countries submitting plans for this. Um, another goal that, again, the COP presidency has is to be able to negotiate a deal on carbon markets globally. It's called Article 6. It's the text within the Paris Agreement. And it's been a complicated matter for countries to be able to agree upon. And every time they have uh, passed the ball on to the next COP and eventually here we are and that needs to be sorted. Um, there is also discussion that needs to happen. And again, something uh, the presidency wants to do is to bring $100 billion worth of financing uh, to be given to developing countries to help with reducing emissions, but also to adapt to the sort of warming that is coming. Now, beyond these three priorities, there are two others that we are hoping to keep an eye out on. One is how much can we get a movement on the reduction in the use of coal? And another one is how much would countries move on reducing emissions from methane, which is a super warming gas. All fascinating areas. And I do want to probe into them in a moment. But first, let me ask Isabel, what are you going to be looking for? Well, as Agsha says, it's it's a big and complicated process and with lots of moving parts. But as China Dialogue, of course, we will be watching very closely what the Chinese delegation does and says and how that goes down with the rest of the participants. We'll also be watching India quite closely. India doesn't get the same level of attention that China does, uh, partly because its emissions are not nearly so high. Um, but its potential for increasing its emissions is very high. So 
you know, what, what, what India's plans are to develop its uh, energy economy without adding too much coal at this point, uh, is clearly of interest. It has a big solar program, but it, it doesn't have a very highly fleshed out, uh, climate strategy as far as we can see. And then the European Union, which does have a, a green plan, will be one of the, you know, pivotal entities here. There are essentially three big blocks. There's China, the United States and the European Union and how they interact, what the relations are like between them, whether they can cooperate or compete. All of that will be an interesting dynamic at this particular COP because the politics have changed so radically since we were all at Paris in in 2015. A couple of countries, uh, China and Russia, have set 2060 goals. Um, just talk us through what the implications of that might be and is there something the rest of the world uh, can uniformly do uh, to try and address this crisis? So uh, the Paris Agreement is actually quite a short document. If you just search for it on Google and download it and read it, it really is quite readable and it's quite short. Now, because it is short, it leaves out quite a few details. So, for example, Isabel brought up net zero by 2050. That's the goal that scientists tell us is the goal we have to meet if we want to reach and keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, and it's a carbon dioxide goal. It's only one of the four or five greenhouse gases that we have to worry about. Um, if we want to keep it below two degrees Celsius, which is a higher temperature, which will come with much more damage to the planet, we actually have more room to reach net zero, so to speak. And what you get from developing countries, especially, and, and China still counts itself as one, is that they would like more time to be able to reach this net zero target because they say, and they are right about it objectively, that rich countries have been using up the carbon budget through the use of fossil fuels in the decades and perhaps centuries past to be able to become wealthy and developed. So that's the argument for some countries, and it's not just China and Russia, but Saudi Arabia this week that declared a net zero goal for 2060 rather than 2050. And one other thing that we probably can learn from the dynamics uh, is that these goals are likely to be brought forward. I mean, we've already seen that happen with Germany. Germany early, earlier this year had a goal of 2050. Its court said, no, that goal is not good enough. And then they brought the net zero goal to 2045. So it's good for us to see countries set these goals. But as Isabel said, if we want to keep it below 1.5 degrees Celsius, we really ought to be aiming for 2050. Yeah, I think, Isabel, you mentioned 2030 as a, a key date, and China's committed to peak emissions by 2030, and that's really not that far away. So do give uh, your take on this question as well. well that was one of two uh, promises that Xi Jinping made in uh, the UN General Assembly in 2020. He came back this year in 2021 to the UN and added uh, another important promise that China would no longer build new coal-fired power stations on the Belt and Road, so outside China, and that it, that China would support countries to develop low carbon renewable systems. Those countries that still need to equip themselves with energy, that still have the right to develop, which nobody disputes, to equip them, uh, with the means to do it without locking themselves into high carbon pathways is incredibly important. And developed countries need to assist, um, developing countries to do that. Um, China's status in this is, is, is ambiguous and it's been ambiguous since China became the world's biggest emitter in 2005. 
because although China, you know, in in many ways claims it's a developing country, it's by now a middle income country. It is by so far and away the world's biggest emitter that if China doesn't act uh, really quite radically, then the rest of the world's efforts are, you know, <laughs> are pretty hard to produce a result if the world's biggest emitter, you know, doesn't act quickly. And so a lot of countries feel, although sympathetic to China, you know, we can't go on playing that card forever because, frankly, you know, the impact on everybody on the entire world is so big uh, that China and the impact on China is also very big that that those goals, I think, will will have to come forward. What China does have, though, in its favor, a couple of things. It's based an industrial strategy on a low carbon future. So its industrial and technological future is premised on the world taking action on climate change because it dominates the production of renewables and, and all the technologies associated with climate action. And secondly, um, it, its mitigation isn't really going fast enough, but I think that it that it will. The 2030 goal is a loose target, frankly. It was on the table in Paris uh, six years ago. It was regarded as a fairly loose target then, and they could bring it forward. But because of the geopolitics and because of anxieties about energy security in China, they're being extremely conservative about that goal. So instead of bringing it forward for this COP, for example, I think we're not going to see very much uh, movement there, possibly 2028. And the problem is the later the leaves are peaking, the harder it is after 2030 to reach their own goal of a 2060 net neutrality, zero carbon ambition. And that matters a great deal because the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is really, really big. Uh, so we, you know, we lose virtually all of the ocean's corals at two degrees. We only lose 90% of them at 1.5. That's bad enough. To lose all of them means you lose the ocean nurseries. And there are many, many, many other major effects that kick in between 1.5 and two degrees. So it does matter. It matters to China too, because the impacts on China will be, uh, will be extremely severe. So everyone is hoping that that Chinese characteristic of setting of setting goals which you then overfulfill is going to kick in here because if they only just get to 2030 before they peak that's really quite difficult I think China is not the uh, the only country facing difficulties um actually you've mentioned quite a lot of money is required for developing countries but let's actually pause for a moment and just on the United States the other major emitter just tell me about uh, the commitments the US has made and the kinds of challenges that Joe Biden himself is facing in terms of trying to uh, move off of fossil fuels. Um, I believe his proposal for a carbon tax, that's not getting a very warm welcome by lawmakers, is it? Yes. So the US is the second largest emitter. And historically speaking, if we count all the emissions that have been put into the atmosphere, the US is actually still the largest emitter. And the U.S. also has a very uh, complicated politics around climate change. There are two parties and two parties are completely opposed uh, on their views about how to resolve the problem of climate change. Now, just before Biden came to power, of course, it was Donald Trump from the Republican Party and he pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. So the U.S. is coming to the table with a lot of baggage and Joe Biden 
knows that and Joe Biden's team knows that. And so they actually tried their best in at least at the early part of the game by putting up a cabinet level position Secretary John Kerry, who was previously when when Paris Agreement was signed, the Secretary of State, to try and uh, drum up the diplomatic uh, winds that the U.S. with its large uh, diplomatic arms around the world could pull off, and they've been mildly su- successful in certain things. So, you know, the the goals that the that Saudi Arabia has set for uh, net zero or the UAE's goal for net zero um, uh, can count to some extent for U.S. pressure. Just today we heard that Australia is going to set a goal for net zero by 2050. There was also diplomatic pressure from the U.S. But when you turn inward, the domestic politics are still as bad as they were, right? Joe Biden is in power, but he hasn't been able to get through a climate plan that could deliver the kinds of cuts that they have pledged already for 2030. And they have set a goal to reach net zero by 2050. Um, Within those plans, uh, that unless the politics are sorted, and it's not just a politics of Democratic Democratic Party versus Republicans, but there are certain Democratic leaders within uh, the party who are opposed to radical uh, action on climate. Um, And until that is resolved, we are going to be in this position where the U.S. sort of is uh, going to be a drag on global climate negotiations. But Joe Biden is expected to be at COP. Xi Jinping is not expected to be at COP26. So, Isabel, just analyze what that means for success at the summit. Well, it would clearly be a a boost to morale uh, were Xi Jinping to be there. But it should be noted that Xi Jinping hasn't actually left China at all since the end of January 2020. So it's not that he is specifically not coming to the COP. He hasn't been to the UN twice. Uh, he's not going to be at G20. And he didn't even go to the opening of COP15, which is the biodiversity conference of the parties, which China hosted in Kunming. So Xi Jinping not traveling is is a fairly you know, that's a fairly settled pattern at the moment. So I don't think we should take it as a sign of lack of interest. Who will be there is Xie Jianhua, who is the Chinese equivalent of, of John Kerry. And the two are, they know each other well. They've, they've both been involved in this process for a very long time. Poor Xie Jianhua keeps trying to retire and he keeps getting brought back in because he's such a kind of pillar of, of Chinese, uh, climate action and, and a very well known figure around the, the circuit. He's trusted. He's very well liked. And Xie Jianhua will be the person that we look to both to communicate what what China is bringing to the table, but also to ensure with John Kerry that what is, in general terms, I think a fairly toxic moment in US-China relations does not contaminate too much the conversations that those two have been having on a very regular basis and will continue to have through the COP and afterwards, because those two are the linchpin of the diplomacy between their two countries on climate. And that relationship is is pretty important. So Xie Jinhua being there, he's a serious player and he will bring serious plans. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. And... Another major block that will be there is the European Union. And of course, I do want to come to this issue of financing. Lots of governments feel quite strapped themselves in terms of fiscal resources because of the pandemic. So Akshat, what role do you think the European Union might play at COP and and do assess whether or not this 100 billion or so for developing countries might be forthcoming? So the European Union has been among the large blocks, the most climate forward and has been pushing on the climate agenda for a very long time. Now, it has had some struggles, of course, with the UK going uh, towards Brexit uh, in the past few years and the UK being the host of COP26. And uh, those struggles have sort of played in the background as they have tried to work together to hold a more ambitious event in Glasgow. In terms of uh, the things that they have done, which have made a difference, uh, the US and the EU, for example, worked on a methane pledge earlier this year, and about three dozen countries now have signed up to it. And they're aiming to reduce methane emissions, which come from oil and gas infrastructure, but also from agriculture and from waste uh, management uh, by 30% by 2030. And that, if it works out, could reduce temperatures by 0.2 degrees Celsius. So in a goal where you're between 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming, which is what we are at today, and 1.5 where you want to keep it, 0.2 degrees Celsius can make a huge difference. So that's been a win for the European Union so far. In terms of trying to get the $100 billion worth of climate finance, the EU has done a lot too. Now, if you look at the contributions that different countries have to make uh, based on their economic heft, 
the EU countries in general have done far better than the US. The US uh, ought to be contributing as much as $40 billion out of uh, the $100 billion, but it's only raised its ambition to about uh, $11 billion. And we learned this week that uh, they are, as a group, are not going to be able to deliver on the $100 billion dollar figure until 2023, which is three years later than promised. And that's not going to go down very well with the developing country block. So that's uh, already becoming a little bit of a friction as we go into the talks at COP26 in Glasgow. Yeah, I think that financial assistance is going to be a massive issue for lots of developing countries um, looking at this pandemic context. I think another issue that I know the WTO Director General, who I had a chance to recently speak to at an event, um, she was advocating from the stage a need for a global carbon tax. And I mentioned there the United States, uh, that's fallen off of the Biden plan. It didn't get political support. But Isabel, it'd be good to, to get your sense as to what coordinated action. Um, is it a carbon tax? Is it, is it other things that might be needed to, uh, to coordinate the realization of these targets? I think in an ideal world, uh, a coordinated carbon tax would be very helpful. I, I can't really, it certainly isn't going to happen in Glasgow and the obstacles on the way to it, I think, are quite considerable. This question of, of transfer of funds to developing countries has been built into the whole UNFCCC really since Kyoto. I mean, essentially, for more than 25 years, we've been discussing who does what and who pays for it. And that's the kind of crux of all of these discussions. And it was recognized in Kyoto that there would be a need to transfer funds. And in that phase, in the Kyoto Protocol, it was done through a thing called the Clean Development Mechanism. It was like a trading system. So industrial enterprises in, in advanced countries, for example, which were relatively efficient, could support less efficient enterprises in developing countries to clean up. And they would get credit for it and the overall reduction in carbon you know, was a good thing. China was a massive beneficiary of that in the first phase. So China has had a great deal of inbound transfer over the years under climate programs. That whole system ended and we are nevertheless left with another residue of, of the Kyoto Protocol, which was carbon trading. Um, the biggest system is the European trading system, which has been going a number of years and has never managed to get the price up to the level that it really makes a difference. China has established its own trading system and the price is on the floor. So a trading system only works if the, if the price of carbon is high. It needs to be about $80 a ton and, you know, it's way off that. So these trading systems are, are kind of meant to be a, a market-based mechanism for reducing carbon. And in principle, possibly yes. But the fact that they don't deliver or they have not yet really delivered very much has made people um, return to the idea that a tax might be a, a much simpler mechanism. But if you impose a tax, you then have the question of how you trade goods. And you see this discussion, for example, in the European Union now, uh, where you have quite a radical program for reducing emissions, for example, from steel or from you know other industrial sectors. Uh, that's going to make the goods more expensive to produce. And you have to protect them from what's called carbon leakage from goods produced in countries which don't have these stringent 
climate rules. So the proposal is that there be a border tax, which uh, protects your low carbon production against damage from high carbon competition. It's called CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. Now, that's quite controversial. And certainly China doesn't like it. The United States is pretty hostile. So as we move to the implementation of these great climate ambitions, we're going to get many, many issues like this, where trade interests and economic interests collide with climate interests. And that's going to take a lot of working out, to be honest. I don't think there are any easy solutions in any of this. Akshat, um, we're quickly running out of time, but I do want to get your take because Isabel's absolutely right. You know, the, the price or the quantity of carbon is essentially what globally countries have been looking at. And this issue of carbon leakage, the European yes. Union is, uh, uh, moving forward on looking at a border adjustment mechanism, essentially a tariff that would try and prevent, uh, some of the dynamics that she's describing. So what is your take on sort of the global coordinated mechanism that we need to see in order to help us get to uh, these targets and the commitments that we hope are coming from these countries? So one thing we haven't talked about, and it's not a topic that comes up at COP because as Isabel said, COP is about who is doing what and who will pay for doing that. Uh, but there is an underlying force that has been helping out with climate negotiations, which is progress on technologies, right? We've had solar power and wind power fall drastically in prices. We've seen the same trend play out in batteries and now electric cars. The next generation of technologies that would need to do the same are hydrogen produced from renewables and perhaps carbon capture technology, which may be required in some uh, specific industries like cement or steel, where it's too expensive to be able to rebuild a, a steel factory that was just built 10 years ago. And so you retrofit it with something that can capture the emissions and bury it underground. Of course, all of that would be helped with a carbon price and a, a agreed a global coordinated carbon price. But even though, even if we don't have that, there are mechanisms through which you can put in an implicit carbon price. So uh, countries around the world, and it's not just the, Euro, uh, the European Union or the UK or the US, um, are providing, for example, credits to buy uh, electric cars, which is an implicit carbon price on a gasoline-powered uh, car. Um, and those kinds of credit mechanisms which governments can take and industries can uh, use to be able to push forward these green goals can have a huge impact. Uh, and what we will see, I believe, um, is that at the COP meeting, it's not just going to be countries meeting and talking about the the text and what is going to go into the final agreement, but there'll be noise made by businesses outside trying to help governments sort of give them the political cover to go forward. And I think even though there's a lot of greenwashing in business, there has not been as much momentum on business as there is today. And that's definitely a positive sign going into the negotiations. I'm, I'm going to try to conclude on a positive note, but I don't know if I'm going to succeed because I'm going to ask each of you uh, what needs to happen for COP26 in Glasgow to be a success. Isabel, you first. We've talked about the 100 billion and that is, it's, it's a very important symbolic target because it does express the fact that we are all in this together and that we need solidarity. And frankly, you know, the advanced economies have not been, uh, have not stepped up. They, they've disappointed and that's unfortunate. But I would say that what is really going to make a difference to emerging economies and the developed 
the developing world is not is not the hundred billion, which is really neither here nor there, uh, except as a promise and a commitment and a sign of seriousness. What really matters is the trillions. What matters is the finance and unlocking uh, finance and directing finance into low carbon development. That is really the key to much more rapid progress. There are signs that this is beginning to shift. The returns on investment in renewables have been rather better than the returns on investment in fossil fuels. I think that there is a a, a much more awareness now in private finance, in banks, in investment vehicles, that this is uh, necessary, desirable, and potentially quite profitable. But there are barriers, particularly for poorer countries, the cost of capital, the question of, of how risk is regarded. And I think that we will see, and certainly in the margins of COP, very serious conversations about how we move that sector along. And I think we will also see a lot of industry pledges. I think we will see a broader front, if you like, on climate because the, the public awareness of climate and therefore the awareness of many different institutions outside government um, is much higher. And I think that the conversation is therefore broader and richer and there are always more positives in those areas than there are in the political conversations between countries. Thank you, Isabel. Same question to you, Akshat. What would you need to see to declare COP26 in Glasgow a success on the pages of Bloomberg News? I think I laid out the five things that we are looking for. It, to me, it feels rather wrong to say it succeeded or it failed. What we would like to see is progress. And if we see progress on all of those measures, we can we can be sure about it. Or we can say there's not been enough progress or there's been more progress than we thought. That is how I would frame, uh, frame the, the whether we succeeded or not um, question. I would give one other point, which I think is crucial. So between Paris and now, in 2018, there was a very important report released by the United Nations in October. It was called, as United Nations reports are called, the Special Report on 1.5 Degrees Celsius. And in its understatedness, it actually galvanized a huge force. The children that come on streets and protest do so because of reading that report. The net zero goals that countries are setting are because of that report. The net zero emissions targets that finance people are setting for their portfolios are because of that report. And if we all agree on a a coordinated way to reach a specific measurable point and what every party has to do in it, that I think that kind of clarity has been lacking from the climate fight so far. And we have that now because of the 2018 report. And I think that makes a huge difference going into COP26. Really good point. But I'm just going to press you for a moment, which is what do you think is the likelihood of COP26 delivering on all five measures and factors that you're looking at? So if we go through those five things, higher ambition, we're still waiting on India and China to submit their pledges. And if they do, that will make a difference. And I think those will come and they will look better than what we've been hoping. And so that's probably going to be a success. Um, on finance, we already know that the $100 billion figure is not coming till 2023. So that already looks like a failure. Uh, on methane emissions, you know, the number of countries that were pledging has already become 3,000 and we might get a few more. And that looks like a success. On coal, I'm afraid because of the energy crunch that we are going through and the need to be able to use 
accessible sources of energy, we might not see higher pledges. So that looks like a failure. The real wild card is Article 6. If we do get a deal on Article 6 on creating this carbon market, which is good and sensible, that might make a difference. But it's so complicated, it's really hard to see if that happens. I can see Isabel shaking her head there, but um, <laughs> but a really great analysis from both of you. A huge thank you to our guests, Isabel Holton from China Dialogue and Akshat Rathi from Bloomberg News. I'm Linda Yu, and thank you all for listening.